Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. At one point, along more than 600 miles of front line in Ukraine, the country's forces have crossed a Russian anti-tank ditch, Dragon's Teeth and Russian fighting lines. They've broken through Russian defences, but is it a breakthrough for the counter-offensive, which President Zelensky now says will continue through the winter? Mike and Simon will explain exactly what's happening on the ground and give their assessments of what might come next. Also on SITREP, British Army veteran Sean Pinner shares his story of being captured, tortured and sentenced to death by Russia while serving as an enlisted member of Ukraine's armed forces. I was the first foreigner to pass all their parachuting training and jump as a Ukrainian soldier. So I wasn't mm. there as a war tourist. I'd, I'd learned Russian, I'd married Ukrainian. And 70 years on, the veterans finally able to wear a medal for their service as Britain's nuclear bomb guinea pigs. The mushroom cloud forming and sort of boiling, as it were. But then there was the time to go into the clouds and collect the samples that the scientists needed. Were you given any protective measures at all or not? Not really, no. Sitrep with Kate Chabot and Professor Michael Clark. Mike, um, you told us last month Ukraine was trying to work out where its most practicable breach in Russia's thousand kilometre front line might be. The, the Institute for the Study of War says Ukrainian forces have now broken through three lines of Russian fortifications in Western Zaporizhia. Is this where it happens? Uh, yes, well, it could be. Uh, I mean, there's been a breakthrough uh, south of Bakhmut uh, to, to Klishkivka down to Adrivka. Uh, that's one. Uh, second one at uh, Velika Novosilka, which is uh, to the further south, and then the one that everyone's focused on, south of Orykiv, towards Tokmak, and Tokmak is still eight miles away from where the Ukrainians are. And so, yes, there are three breakthroughs, and towards Tokmak, the Ukrainians think, and some others think, that they are through the main uh, defences. But, you know, this this is a bit like the Normandy battle in 1944, because the Allies, you know, D-Day was very successful, but then the Allies spent two months trying to break out of the, of the beachheads because mm -hmm. Hitler demanded that every inch of territory be defended. So the Germans put everything onto the front line. And when the Allies broke through in July, there was nothing behind it. And they raced to Paris, they raced to Brussels faster than the Germans had even crossed France in 1940. What a lot of people are wondering and what the uh, Ukrainians are certainly hoping is that this might be a bit similar. If they can break through the front lines, we know that the Russians have put a lot onto the front lines. Have they got nothing behind it or not enough behind it to prevent a, a rapid breakthrough? Well, well, we'll find out in the next six weeks, I imagine. Yeah, so, and we'll talk through the possible scenarios in a bit more detail in a moment. But let's just to bring in Simon Newton, Forces News' Ukraine reporter, to Hi, get Kate. some more. Hi, Simon. Let's get some more detail about what's happening on the ground, Simon. And physically, hmm. how big is this breach and how do, much access does it give Ukrainian forces? Well, Mike, as Mike was saying there, there's these three particular spots where they seem to have gone through. And, the, and these are breaches rather than breakthroughs uh, to, to greater and lesser degrees. In terms of size, they seem to be ranging, you know, there's different reports saying that some are a mile wide. Um, some seem to be around a kilo, kilometre or so wide. But I think it's worth remembering that, you know, these are these are villages at most. They're not even towns, these these areas that they're taking. But they are significant because they're, they will allow the Ukrainians to bring forward their artillery for, you know, closer to the fight more accuracy 
and around Bakhmut in particular, it allows them to control the higher ground around, around that what remains of that uh, that city. So, yeah, in terms of access, these are these are breaches, not breakthroughs. But the mention of Tokmak, the Mike made there, that's very important because it does bring them much closer to that prize, which lies beyond. It's about twenty or so miles, I think, from from Vobobe, and that's a very important railway junction a very important logistics hub for the Russians at the neck of the Crimean Peninsula. It's at the center of five roads in that particular part of Ukraine, and it effectively holds the eastern and the western Russian armies together. So that is the real prize that seems to be the one they will go for after they push through this. So there's some doubt whether they'll need to take Vobobe. Some reports say they've already taken half of that settlement already, but do they need it? Probably not. They can just push on. But Tokmak is ringed with defenses uh, and Getting there and taking it is not going to be easy. Yeah, and as Mike said, that they haven't created a clear run yet, have they? No, I think, I mean, the clear run is an interesting phrase because there's, you know, there's reports, yes, they've got beyond these dragon's teeth and these anti-tank ditches in places. But if you listen to, to NATO commanders, they, they kind of pour cold water on that, that idea, really, of this cold run. The Russians seemingly won't, they're not going to disappear. There's less and less evidence that they're going to crumble and, and vanish. So the, the consensus seems to be that, you know, we shouldn't really get carried away. The Russians are learning. They're very good at that. There's reports, for instance, that they're ramping up production of military trucks, mother and more expensive T-90 tanks. They're going for trucks because it can take their logistics off the railways. They can put them into these lorries and they can feed them to these individual, you know, units on the front line instead of having to have these long supply convoys, which were obviously vulnerable to uh, to high Mars, as, as we saw last year. So the Russians are playing a waiting game. The weather is very important. It's going to play a massive part in this. They're waiting for the autumn rains to come. The Ukrainians, as we said, say they will fight f- through the winter, but it's going to become more difficult and of course, you're going to, you know, any slowing down of this offensive, which is undoubtedly going to happen, will allow the Russians to, to regroup and, and, and refortify this front line. And Mike, the Institute for the Study of War says three assumptions have to be true for this to be a significant breakthrough. Number one, that Russia doesn't have the necessary reserves to maintain its defences there. Two, the Ukrainian forces still have combat power to keep pushing after exhausting Russian combat power. And number three, that Russia's rear defensive positions, which are still to be breached, aren't as heavily mined or well prepared as the forward ones. Um, What Mm. are the chances... Well, I think all those three assumptions are half true, as we understand at the moment. Certainly, we're pretty, we're pretty clear that the Russians don't have an operational reserve because they're moving units from one part of the front to another. So, for instance, in the battle around Tokmak or north of Tokmak that Simon was talking about now, the, the, the Russians moved the 42nd Division from the, from the uh, northeast down to there. They moved five regiments from the 7th and the 76th VDV, the airborne divisions, they take they taken some of the bits out of their most elite forces, put them down there, and those five regiments have not done very well. I mean, they've taken heavy losses, and the forty second mechanized is now doing most of the fighting there, and so they're taking troops away from one area to put to another. If they had a mobile reserve, they'd be, they'd have used it by now, but they haven't, so they don't have a reserve. The Ukrainians do have more power that they can bring forward if they choose to take the risks, and we'll see if they do. So those assumptions which the Institute for the Study of War mention are all absolutely true. And I'd say that they are they're 50 percent met. And if we go bigger picture, Mike, you've talked before about how the bulk of Ukraine's most capable armoured brigades were being held back in reserve. Are they being put into action now? Yes, the the 82nd is the um, the 82nd Air Assault Brigade is the one with the most potent equipment and that's fighting fairly hard. The 46th and the 47th, 
mechanized and assault brigades are also there. Um, and that's where this the breakthrough of South of Orokiv that we're talking about, that's where it's taking place. Um, they, they're forming more units as well because they've got more. Uh, the, the Abrams tanks are, have just arrived, or the first batch of them, uh, the American Abrams tanks. They've got another 120-odd Leopard 1s coming, not Leopard 2s, but Leopard 1s coming. And they're forming new brigades out of those. So there will be more uh, forces that they can bring forward in the next few weeks. Do the Ukrainians have a big reserve? No, they don't. But they certainly have, they're, they're preparing to fight through the winter. And so they're bringing more more stuff forward. The question would be when the weather turns, where are they on the ground? How much damage have they done to the Russian rear areas by then? And then they'll reassess what they can achieve over the winter. And of course, as we've said so many times, whatever they achieve has got to be something that impresses the West and silences the, the skeptics in the West that this is no more than a stalemated war. They've somehow got to break that growing perception that this war is headed for long-term stalemate. Well, let's move from land to sea. Uh, Simon, Ukraine seems to be have inflicted some significant damage on Russia's Black Sea fleet we've seen. Yeah, obviously we had the attacks earlier this month with the um, the storm shadows and then the drones attacking um, the dry dock in Sevastopol, taking out the, the Rostov on Don submarine and the, and the Minsk landing ship. And then last Friday we had this attack on the Black Sea fleet headquarters in Sevastopol and there was that footage which most people have seen of that storm shadow just you know going into the building and that left a large burning hole pretty much demolished the building Ukraine's claimed that they killed 34 officers in that attack uh, and another 100 personnel the key among them of course as we probably know is is their claim that they've killed Admiral Viktor Sokolov who's the commander of the Black Sea Fleet Moscow said one serviceman was whistling but they, they later rolled back on that uh, and the Kremlin then accused NATO and, and even named the UK as having helped plan this attack. Mike, how much impact could that have on this war? Because to the civilian layman, you might wonder, given this is basically a land war, why maritime capability matters? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two military objectives to what the Ukrainians are trying to do. And remember, the Ukrainians don't have a navy. They're taking on the Black Sea Fleet as a country that doesn't possess a navy of, of any consequence. And the two objectives are one is that they want to try to keep the Black Sea fleet out of the western part of the Black Sea, just make it too dangerous for them, too dangerous to operate from Sevastopol, for instance, which it is already. And with the western Black Sea, as it were, clear of Russian ships, then there's a better chance of getting their grain out, creating this 100 mile grain corridor to the Bosphorus. And then the second military reason is, is as and when the Ukrainians think they can reach the coast of the Sea of Azov, they want to do as much as they can to hobble the Black Sea Fleet because the Black Sea Fleet operating from Novorossiysk, which is its own, you know, the Russian base on the eastern part of the Black Sea. The Black Sea Fleet can certainly do a lot of damage to Ukrainian forces who reach the coast on the Sea of Azov. If they get to Berdyansk and Mariupol again, then, of course, they'll be vulnerable to the Black Sea Fleet operating in the eastern part. So they want to do as much as they can to degrade the Black Sea Fleet in anticipation, they hope, of getting to the coast on the Sea of Azov at some point. And Simon, um, things are never simple. And you mentioned that Ukraine had uh, claimed that the commander of the Black Sea Fleet had been killed in mm. the headquarters strike. And then the Kremlin released this video, supposedly showing him at a meeting. Um, we don't know when that was exactly. Um, do we have any clearer answers as to whether he is alive or dead? 
No, this is this is a this is a sort of classic Russian uh, situation. I mean, Viktor Sokolov is sixty one, and as you say, the admiral of the of the Black Sea Fleet. They called this strike. I've discovered Operation Crab Trap, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And then, and they claimed he'd been killed, and that they somehow had some information. There maybe have been a, a meeting of senior commanders going on. There's been nothing from the Kremlin to confirm he's a, he's alive or dead, really. But on Tuesday, as you say, we have this video, supposedly of this big video conference with them all sitting there listening to Sergei Shoigu, the defence minister. And in the corner of the screen is, is Sokolov. But you know nothing is, is as it seems, as you say. There was questions about when it was recorded. You know, he, he didn't speak in this video. I don't think he even mm. blinked, actually, in it. So you know, was it a pre-recording just slipped in to try and prove he was alive and kicking? And then yesterday, he pops up again in this video on Russian TV, handing out a trophy to the Black Sea Fleet football team. Again, that's suspicious because mm. he's asked a question. It's a very general one about you know what how, about what happened, not about anything specific. And he sort of says life goes on, but um, that could again have been, been recorded some sometime previously after the last attack. So the Ukrainians are actually rolling back a bit on their numbers now. But long and short of it is that we're really not any clearer as to whether he is alive or dead. So, Mike, um, any idea what will change in this war between now and the end of the year? Uh, well, the the results of the offensive will be assessed uh, in the autumn, as, as I think strategies will change over the winter. The Russians certainly will re- renew their bombardment of critical infrastructure. They'll try and, and cut off the electricity supply to Ukraine again this winter. We're pretty certain about that. And then, of course, the way this war goes, you think about the Prigozhin coup not so long ago and the, the Wagner Group's extraordinary behaviour, um, you can't rule out another sort of turn of the wheel in that respect. Things that you couldn't mm. predict will suddenly, you know, come out of nowhere and seem to change the dynamic of the war. So I think, as always with this sort of conflict, we've got to be prepared for the completely unexpected. And Simon, what what do you think? Um, well, I, I asked this question, actually, of Major General Chip Chapman, who, who was commander of Two Para. Um, talked to him this week about that. And he was sort of saying, you know, we've not seen anything like this since the Second World War in terms of the depth of minefields that the Ukrainians have got to try and get through. And it's, it, we are in unknown territory, exactly as Mike just said. You know, he did talk about Tokmak being the key to this next few months. They don't have to reach the coast, but if they can get to Tokmak, that will change everything. And he also mentioned the fact that the Ukrainians will try or should try to take out the M14, which is this key supply road between Militopol and Mariupol. Yeah, I think it, I think it's more of the same. And I say I was talking to some Ukrainian troops yesterday in the east of England. They're being trained by by British troops on op interflex. Talking, I asked them that very question, you know, and they they don't. A lot of them had been in combat before. They just said they are prepared. They're braced effectively for more hard, brutal slog through this winter. Simon Newton, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Well, less than 100 miles east of Ukraine's breakthrough of Russian lines is the city of Mariupol, which was besieged and devastated in three months of fighting before falling to the invaders. Among the Ukrainian troops captured by Russia was Sean Pinner, a British veteran who'd served nine years in the Royal Anglian Regiment. During his months of imprisonment, he was tortured and then sentenced to death. However, This time last year, he was freed in a prisoner swap brokered by Saudi Arabia and the Russian former owner of Chelsea football club Roman Abramovich. Sean's story in Ukraine began four years before the Russian invasion as a trainer of Ukrainian troops, marrying and settling, then enlisting with Ukraine's Marines as a route to citizenship. It's the story he shares in a new book, Live, Fight, Survive. And he's been telling me how his decades old experience in the British Army helped him to do that. And just to warn you, you may find some of what we discuss distressing. 
I was the first foreigner to pass all their parachuting um, training and jump as a Ukrainian soldier. So I wasn't mm. there as a war tourist. I'd, I'd learned Russian. I'd married Ukrainian. I, I passed what they equivalent to P Company, uh, did nine jumps, including a night jump, four combat jumps. I then became a section commander with the Marines, which was totally unheard of. Uh, I, I ran a position on the front line the year before. And then on February the 24th, 2022, where were you at the moment you learned Russia had launched a full-scale invasion? Well, this was my f- fourth rotation on the front lines. We were on a routine deployment about 15, 20 minutes outside Mariupol. Uh, and I was in a forward operating base, about nine people strong, an advanced forward position, which was an early warning system. So it was about 800 metres further forward than the first line. And on the day of the invasion, it was just hell. It was shock and awe. We we just started the withdrawal back after 11 hours of fighting on the first day. We 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 started to withdraw back into Mariupol. You were tasked to defend Mariupol, an incredibly long and hard battle. Had anything prepared you for what happened in that city? No, uh, I've never seen anything like it in the 13 years previous. I was in the military. I've been to Bosnia. I saw the remnants of it in Sarajevo and Mostar and Vitez. Uh, Ireland's obviously nothing like not like this scenario. I don't know how we got through the first day with not one casualty, but the amount of ordnance and, and bullets and rockets that were being shot at our position. I mean, we had to extract uh, about 800 metres back to the first line from our position, but that was only after about 10 hours of fighting on the front line. It was just crazy. I knew we would withdraw back to Mariupol. My experience told me that that was going to be the case, even though nobody really told us what was going to happen. After seven weeks, six, seven weeks of fighting, uh, we'd literally just run out of ammunition, weapons. We were very low on water. Soon we got surrounded, and by late March, early April, it was over. My boss said we were going to go uh, and try and escape to uh, a sister battalion that was fighting Russians on the Azov coast, which was about 130 kilometers away. Um, so I started to prepare for that, save a bit of food. Really, you're just going with what you're wearing, a little bit of ammunition and, and whatever you've got on you. On the 12th of April, we made the dash out of Mariupol, and that's the video footage you see uh, of us getting ambushed on the way out. It was dark at the time, so everybody just went in different directions. I was captured about two hours outside of Mariupol. The sun had come up by then and I was captured. I literally walked into a wooded area, into what looked like a village, looking for water and food, and uh, literally walked into a forward observation point. And there began your incarceration, your imprisonment. Um, You document quite graphically in your book the torture that you endured. Um, Can you tell us a bit about it now? Do you feel you can talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, uh, I was taken to a company size area about 10 minutes past the fir- their first line uh, where I was beaten. They didn't want me running anywhere. So the guy just stabbed me in the leg, right thigh, a two, three inch gash, and, and it was very, very painful. And then they took me about 30, 40 minutes to another place and they just put paddles on my fingers and started to electrocute me. And then I was, a uh, pistol was put to the back of my head and they fired off the action. Uh, in a mock execution and just said, we're only joking. And then he pistol whipped me. Uh, at one point I was tasered. I went to the floor. How did you draw on your military experience to get through that? 
Oh, I don't know. If you'd have asked me six months earlier it, how I'd have dealt with it, I, I, I don't know. Um, the, the isolation cell and the starvation was probably harder. I know where people think it's weird, but starvation was the hardest part. I mean, they didn't feed me for 50 days. Uh, we had bread. We were pulled out for propaganda. Um, we got a good timeline of imagery from the minute I was captured where I looked okay to the minute I went to trial where I was like, gaunt, maybe 60 kilos. I was looking really bad. You know, you can do all the practice with conduct after capture, but, you know, when you put that into practice, it's very painful. You went to trial and you were accused of treason. You decided to plead guilty. Why did you decide that? Well, we didn't have a choice. I wasn't really pinning on any hopes on, on getting through the trial without the guilty verdict. So we pleaded guilty to two because we were told there'd be less of a sentence, but the serious charge, we were going to plead not guilty. And when we did plead not guilty, uh, the court was stopped. All the cameras were turned off and they were just made it very clear that we couldn't do that. It, it wasn't in the agenda. And, and when you got that, that death sentence, death by firing squad, can you recall that moment? Yeah, I was angry. The pictures will show you I'm angry. I was angry we didn't get a fair representation. I was angry we didn't get a chance to defend ourselves. It, it, it was just all scripted. So I was angry. It was a time where I was on my own for the first time. I'd put this sort of resistance up. And I was just collapsed in the cell. I just broke down. It was just venting because I, I just didn't know whether we were going to get out of there. And then there the came the hope, the hint that you might be given over in a prisoner exchange. How did you learn about that? Quite early on, we were used as propaganda, and it was quite made clear quite early on that we could be swapped to Viktor Medvedchuk. This is yeah. the godfather, President Putin's daughter. Yeah. So we don't we didn't know why that sort of uh, really petered out, but um, it sort of rejuvenated again. And you're trying to work out whether you've got some value. So we were fighting for time, and we got wind that we could be exchanged, and then we were taken to Rostov Don around the 22nd of September. That moment when your freedom finally came, you were taken from a prison cell to a luxury private jet with Roman Abramovich <laughs> the, on board, the former owner of Chelsea, and the man who brokered your freedom. I mean, the the the, the contrast is is quite unbelievable. Um, did it seem real? No, we were over the moon because we really had no idea. We were just we were just as we were taken off. I was just looking back, thinking, "Please don't shoot us down! Please don't shoot us down!" It was all the way out until we got out of Russian airspace. We realised we were free. And then uh, I was coming out of a toilet with my change of clothes and uh, this old guy's talking to John Harden. And, uh, he said, where are you from? I said, London. I said, where are you from? He said, London. He said, you half look like Roman Abramovich. He went, I am Roman Abramovich. And I was like, what are you doing here? Um, and it all became really surreal then. You know, what John did he say to saying, you when you said, what are you doing here? Well, John, John just sort of said, I bet he's wondering why you didn't buy West Ham. And he just straight <laughs> off the bat went, well, Chelsea, Chelsea was closer to my house. Um, <laughs> and, and I was just hilarious. Um, and then his PA sort of told us about the world news, how we become world news, because we really had no idea. We had a big seven-month gap. We were just thinking we're never going to get out of here. And it's just... It's just a twist of fate. We're very, very lucky. I was lucky to get through Mariupol alive, let alone through Russia and through captivity. So I was. most of my friends are still captured. So we, we just try and keep Ukraine in the public eye and talk about that. 
Sean Pinner, what a man. Uh, it is a truly remarkable story. We talked for well over half an hour from his nine years in the British Army to volunteering in Syria and the moment a Russian prison guard told him that the Queen had died. You can listen to all of that in an extra edition of the SITREP podcast online now. Uh, Mike, one of the things that came through time and time again in our conversation is how he drew on his army training for a capture situation, even though it was more than 30 years ago. Yeah, it's. I mean, the, the thing about training, I mean, training is never enough for the reality, whether it's combat or capture or anything, but it helps people to anticipate what might happen. It's, it's, it's the shock and surprise of what really does happen that can break people down and to hold on to something. You've got to hold on to some element of your personality, some element of reality that the guards mm. are trying to take away. And part of that is to anticipate it, not to be taken too much by surprise. And, you know, something else is very interesting this week that uh, Alice Edwards, who's the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, has just finished her trip to Ukraine. She's going to present a big report next year to the UN Human Rights Commission. And in what she is now saying, very clear, she said, Russian torture is systematic, it is state-led, because she said the way they torture people, and Sean's account is pretty typical of this, what they do is what they do to everybody in Syria, in Chechnya, in Ukraine. There is a systematic pattern to this. It's not random. It's not just de dependent on the person who happens to be in the, in the room with you. They know what they're doing, and they do it very deliberately, very systematically. And that is a state-led process of torture and um, Alice Edwards will be presenting that to the UN next year. I'm sure we'll be talking about it when it comes out. Uh, Mike, stay with us. Now, a little bit of history, the story behind the newest medal that will be worn for the first time by veterans at Remembrance Day this year. The sound of that explosion. Eyes closed and hands over your eyes. It was a bit like thunder, but it was constant. When the flash went off, I could see the bones of my hands. And there it was, the H-bomb cloud. The ball of flame gradually getting higher and higher. The most evil-looking thing I've ever seen. Up to 22,000 people took part in Britain's first nuclear tests. 70 years on, it's thought around 1,500 of them are still alive and are now entitled to the Nuclear Test Veterans Medal after decades of campaigning. Some were serving in the armed forces, others civilians, some volunteers, others ordered to take part. Many see themselves as guinea pigs used for testing the effects of the bombs and in some cases paying with either their lives or significant health damage. Hannah King has been talking to three nuclear test veterans about their experiences. Richard Wood, a civilian serving on the Royal Fleet Auxiliary ship sent to a test in the South Pacific. Dick Bridges, who volunteered to take part while serving as an RAF chef. And first, John Robinson, an RAF test pilot who flew through the nuclear fallout cloud. A notice came round looking for crews to go on special duties to fly out in Australia. The requirement was that we all had to be single people. And they called it special duties? Special, yes, that's what we were told until we started to find out exactly what it was all about. <laughs> As a National Serviceman, after I'd finished my basic training, I was posted to Shoreham by sea, which I found rather disappointed seeing as I could virtually walk home every day. So as soon as it came up on the notice board, volunteers wanted for Australia, that really appealed to me, so I applied. 
I think I knew that uh, it was going to be an atomic test, but uh, it didn't, that didn't particularly worry me because at the time, that's, it didn't seem all that major. We came to Christmas Island and none of the crew thought anything of it until we were told there's going to be an H-bomb uh, detonation called Operation Grapple. The crew <laughs> promptly downed tools. It would have been a mutiny had, it, had we have been in the armed forces. We were told that if we decided to go to Fiji for a couple of three days uh, to rest and relaxation, which means getting drunk as a skunk, would we then dis come back and, and stand off Christmas Island, which reluctantly the crew decided to do. We had our back to where the explosion was going to be. We were told to cover up our eyes with our hands. And I could feel the heat down my back and my arms and my legs, and it was, and it was quite, it was quite worrying at the time. Britain fires its first H bomb to join the United States and Russia as ranking atomic powers. The thermonuclear device was fired high over its target in the Christmas Islands, keeping fallout at a minimum. But the test added heat to the mounting debate over the safety of atomic tests. And came to the hatch came down and click, 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 and it was locked. So we, we had bomb gone, and then nothing, and then suddenly this, this flash of light. It must have penetrated through solid steel. I've never got to know how that could have happened. We felt this push of the ship, and I thought, oh God, if we're going to go over, we're, we're in trouble. But no, she came right. The hatch was opened, and everybody was just looking. This spectre of the mushroom cloud forming and, and, and sort of boiling, as it were. But then there was the time to go into the clouds and collect the samples that the scientists needed. Were you given any protective measures at all or not? Not really, no. We were kept ourselves on 100% oxygen, so it was a positive pressure going into our lungs the whole time. Um, and that was really the only other thing. Otherwise, we were in normal flying kit and quite happy with that. Yeah. They were unsure what effect it was going to have on the human body. They hadn't a clue. But then, of course, when the planes come back, they were washed off once again by people, national servicemen like me. I think the danger was far greater for them, far greater. But I don't think anybody was really aware of it at the time. And subsequently, of course, they are finding out now that several people have suffered badly from it. And uh, I'd be one of the lucky ones who, who escaped. The ocean was full of dead fish. You couldn't see anything but dead fish for miles around. Which the, the detonation must have, the blast must have killed millions of fish. To me, it seemed as though we were just used as fodder. 16-year-old schoolboy, not good news. I'm convinced that we were guinea pigs. That's why we were there, and that's why we were on the uh, airstrip, exposed. I think that we was part of the experiment. I feel quite proud of it, actually, because we set then, we, were, we became the third nation who had an H-bomb at the end of the day. I don't regret taking part in the test at all. Not, not at all. But there again, I'm fortunate, and I feel terribly sorry for those that took part in it and 
Will died very soon afterwards. It all seems such, such a long time ago now. It's a different world almost. That was Dick Bridges, John Robinson and Richard Wood talking to Hannah King. And you can see Hannah's film, Britain's Nuclear Bomb Guinea Pigs, on the Forces News YouTube channel. The government says it continues to recognise and be grateful to all who took part in the tests. Mike, um, they are remarkable stories and they're absolutely central to our defence posture and arguably our high military status in the world today, aren't they? Yes, and as they said there, it was part of the programme to make Britain a, a nuclear power in those years because it reinforces the, the fact that, you know, we didn't really know what these things did even in 1945. You know, the first test in Alamogordo in February 1945 before the dropping of the Hiroshima bomb in August, um, it was regarded as a remarkable explosion, but nobody quite knew what it was going to do. All they were sure of was that, as the phrase went, it was brighter than a thousand suns. And it took years to really work out what the longer term implications of nuclear weapons were. And we didn't really understand it until the hydrogen bomb into the 1950s. And so these servicemen were intrinsic to the fact that you know, we, for good or bad, we live in a nuclear world and we live in a nuclear world which has been handled pretty safely by Britain and America and France in the first instance, Russia and China. You know, Russia became a nuclear power as well in 19, uh, was it 19? 49 and then uh, in the 50s. Um, but these weapons have been handled responsibly so far, partly because of all the work that was done in the period that these servicemen were talking about. And uh, Mike, the UK stopped nuclear testing in the 90s and signed the comprehensive nuclear test ban. Does that mean we're never going to be able to design a new nuclear weapon while we're signed up to that? Or do we have a different way of developing with confidence? There are different ways of developing. Simulation testing is used a lot now and, and sort of benchtop testing because most of the work on, on warhead design was done many years ago. And, the, the, you know, the issue for nuclear weapons is that it's much harder to make them go off than people think. Um, you know, a nuclear weapon is more likely not to work than to work because of the problem of triggering. And we've, we've solved that, those problems years ago, and we know that the technologies are pretty good. So I have to say there's nothing in either the Non-Proliferation Treaty or the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty which prevents the development on a modernization of British weapons as long as they are only as a minimum deterrent for our own national defence. If we started to try to use them for other sorts of things, more substrategic effects, then there's, the danger is that we'd have to breach those treaties in order to do the right sort of testing, and that wouldn't be a good idea. But as long as we are true to our doctrine, which is it is a minimum deterrent for our defence, then what we've got now will be adequate, certainly deep into the 21st century. Mike, great to talk to you as always. Thank you so much for your time and my thanks to all of our guests today. That is all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. If you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Mass Geek under observation. Monitoring pulse. The Super Bowl. The World Cup final. The Monaco Grand Prix. Uh, try something different. British Aerospace Sea Harrier FRS-1. 
the Lockheed Martin F-35 Lightning II continuous capability, development and delivery upgrade. The damp, holy smell of an aircraft hangar. My wonderful math mates, Ginny Carlin here, with my ever-dependable co-pilot, Jamie Gordon. And we're chuffed to bits to announce Series 4 of Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession, with new episodes every Tuesday. That's provided the men in black have given up on tracking us down, of course. Air traffic has been very good, they've cleared us to land. The runway's all out. Oh, 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 oh. Sorry, it's the shouting. Now they're looking down the far end. Oh, oh, shit. Oh dear. I mean, I didn't know if I landed it or we were shot down, to be absolutely oh. fair. <laughs> we just stood outside the American hangar with so much beautiful American hardware in there. Do you just go in and have a sniff? <laughs> we can. I fly the back seat of the F-15E Strike Eagle. I don't know if I'd choose a different aircraft, because this is, as a backseater, this is the only fighter I got, and it's amazing. I love everything that I get to do on this aircraft. Like, we go fast, we can pull out of G's. Not to mention I got a pilot, so I got to have a buddy that I get to talk to. As I said, I've got more successful takeoffs than landings now, so I don't know how I address the fact. That must have been terrifying. Join us for Series 4 of Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession. Listen to Mav Geeks on bfbs.com slash podcasts. And of course, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favourite podcast platform. <laughs>